Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi, everyone. This is Terror Talk uh, with Shannon and Kathy. Hi. Hello. Today we on the show, we are doing the first part of our, I believe it's going to be a four-part series on Richard Kuklinski, who is most commonly known as the Iceman. But first, we have a couple of announcements. The first announcement would be that, FYI, we're not taking any time off from the podcast for the holidays. We will be continuing to upload our regular episodes throughout the holidays. We are going to pre-record a couple of them so that we can engage in the holidays. But other than that, we uh, the episodes will continue as scheduled. They will. Yeah. And then the second announcement Kathy's going to make. Okay. So we've made a final decision on our spring true crime series based on, uh, th- first of all, thank you all for th- those of you who voted and had an opinion about whether we should do Richard Ramirez or... BTK, should Dennis Rader. Should what? I drum roll? Sure, you can drum roll. <laughs> She's it, like, it won't matter. It, if that makes you feel important. <laughs> I feel important. And the decision goes to Richard Ramirez, yeah. the Night Stalker. Big shock. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, was, it was neck and neck there for a little while. It was. We were getting votes for both for a little while, and then it started to slide in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, I've already started doing some of his research. And cool. Yeah, it's pretty heavy. Yeah, we actually, before we started recording, we talked about how we're going to talk a little bit about behind the scenes about that on the <laughs> on the Shrink Chat show, so mm-hmm. tune in for that, yeah. about how that is. And I can give some reflections to this material as well. So, Richard Kuklinski, let's dive in, yeah? Let's do it. Okay, so... To orient you, Richard Leonard Kuklinski was born April 11th, 1935. So just think about, you know, decades and what kind of culture was happening in 1935. Uh, He died on March 5th, 2006 in prison at the age of 70. So he is deceased. Uh, He was known as the Iceman um, because of one of his body disposal techniques, which was freezing a body and then defrosting it months or sometimes years, most more often years later, actually, and uh, dumping it, defrosting it, and then dumping it for discovery so that the accurate time of death was impossible to determine. It would seem like the person was dead, like, you know, just a couple of days ago or whatever, when it was really dead two years ago. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so that's how he got the name the Iceman, is that one of his many, as we will see over this series, one of his many techniques for body disposal, which he was widely known for, but that's the reason why he became known as that is is ultimately uh, one of the ways he got captured. So we'll go into that story later. But he was, for those of you who don't know, he was an American mafia hitman for hire. So that's what he's most famous for. Um, but I think throughout our discussion, we'll talk about a lot about how we define his criminal behaviors and how we might want to label him. Because, you know, there's a lot of labels that we can put on people. Um, for him, you know, psychopath, sociopath, criminal, murderer, serial killer, narcissist, victim, perpetrator, dad, husband, son. I mean, there's just a lot of labels that we could 
assigned to him and some of those are fixed. You know, he was a dad. He was a son. He was a husband. He was a perpetrator. He was a victim. Like some of those things are, there's no disputing that. But I think some of the other uh, nuances to these discussions are sort of where we want to put him in his criminal behaviors and how we would, you know, is he diagnosable? Was there any mental health going on? Or was he a psychopath, a criminal, a murderer, but not a sociopath or not, you know, like, because we can kind of piece that apart as we go. I think it's an interesting discussion because some people have called him a serial killer and others just call him a hitman or a psychopath. So he was also known as a one man army and the devil himself. You know, he had a lot of monikers, I think, in the world. Uh, you didn't want to you didn't want to see him coming because <laughs> anyone who knew him when he was an adult, if you saw him coming, it meant you were on the list. You were going to be killed, most likely. The other thing about him is that he's 6'5", 270 pounds. He looks big in his pictures. He's a big-ass person. <clears throat> yeah. So big intimidating. Ass. He's a big-ass. Big-ass. <laughs> he's an intimidating person. Yeah, I wouldn't so... want that guy walking up to me and <laughs> no. taking my life. No. I mean, I really wouldn't want anyone taking my life. Well, walking up to you, period, right? I mean, right. Just he's an intimidating guy. Plus, he's a hitman. So you don't really... If you see him, you're in trouble. Yeah, it's bad. It's like the boogeyman, right? Um, as is often the case, he's suspected of far more murders than he confessed to or than he was convicted of. Uh, he completed hits for the five families of New York City. Um, he's particularly linked to the Gambino family, which we'll get into the mafia stuff in later episodes. But he has discussed publicly that he didn't count his kills, but that it's fair to say he's killed over 200 people, but you know, he wasn't counting. So he, he hesitates to say, I th there, there was a series of three different documentaries that came out, um, I think in the eighties and nineties and, it's like the first one he talks about over 50 people and the second one he talks about over 100 people. And then by the time they get to his interview with the psychiatrist in the third one, he's the psychiatrist kind of pushes him to acknowledge that it's probably over 200 and he's not really sure because, you know, he doesn't say he didn't count, but obviously he didn't. I mean, why who would he? He wasn't a serial killer in the in the respect of like, I remember all my victims and keep their That's hair. That's exactly and what all I was that. just noting. Yeah. So when you go back to the, the labels, yeah. he doesn't come off. I mean, at least mm -hmm. right now, because yeah. I, I haven't done much reading on him. To me, he doesn't present that way. Right. Because he would be counting and bragging and Right. Yeah. I think that's the that's the thing to just note initially. And that's why I kind of bring up the question of what are, what are the labels that he might be in the wheelhouse of? Because it, it's, a, it's actually kind of more complicated than that, which makes him really interesting. And one of the reasons why I initially wanted to, to dig into this. Um, like who just has this kind of business where yeah. he's just able to be unaffected and detached and is like, all right, yeah, whatever you need. Yeah, it's it's an interesting situation because I think as we go into more and more of the details of the way it developed, I think there'll be, it'll be like, oh, well, maybe, hmm, and then maybe that, you know, you could kind of flip-flop with some of the behaviors. Yeah. It's kind of well, I imagine interesting there, in that way. There's a large financial compensation for it as well. You bet, yeah. you bet. Five and six figures when he was in his prime oh my for God. a hit. So, because he was uh, good at his job. Mm -hmm. So 
on in in May of 1988 was when he was convicted and he he actually was convicted of uh, murders and then he also admitted to other murders during the allocution but it wasn't he wasn't convicted for that many you know it's like it, he was sentenced to life in prison after 30 years of killing and if he's saying over 200 people you know he obviously wasn't convicted of killing 200 people and so it's um and you know this whole time he had a wife and three children who reportedly knew nothing of his lifestyle until they witnessed his trial and his allocution. And his wife um, has been recorded as, as talking about how it wasn't like their, well, I've seen interviews where she talks about how their life was really perfect and they had everything and these three kids and an amazing house and all of this. But when you start to dig into it, it wasn't uh, perfect. And she does end up talking about how, there were times when, you know, you just didn't ask is how she puts it, <laughs> you know, and that's often what people do uh, when they suspect their family members or family, especially their provider. I was about to say also the time, the mm -hmm. era, right? Absolutely. Where he worked and she was not to question mm -hmm. what he did. Yeah, no, that wasn't, that was not the, and there was a clear power differential. And so, you know, she talks about it. She talks about being surprised and shocked at the trial and the allocution because she didn't know that person. Like, I don't know that guy. Mm -hmm. But then as you dig into this, you think, well, but you did. You just didn't think it was capable of that. Of this level. Of this level. Like, I don't think many people would let their imagination right. imagine that no. their spouse, the father of their three children, is capable of what no. he was capable of. And it just begs to, you know, it begs the question that she must have not known a whole lot about his upbringing either, which we're about to get into. Um, yeah, when asked in court, he stated his reason for killing. Like the judge says something like, like, why'd you kill all these people? And he says it was due to business. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, in that moment in front of everyone and in front of his family who's in the courtroom, he's going to say, you know, I, I killed just as a business. Like it was just my job. But as we'll find out, that's not really true, actually. I mean, it's partly true, but... Not entirely true. So I wanted to play a little clip just for you to hear his voice if you haven't heard his voice or if you haven't read these um, or, sorry, watched um, any material on him so that you can kind of hear his voice along the way in your head. So here is Richard talking a little bit about murder. Sort of you feel and you Nothing haunts me. No murders haunt me. Nothing. I don't think about it. That's why it's hard for me to tell you. In order for me to be able to tell you when something happened, I'd have to think about why, when. If I think about it, it would wind up hurting me. So I don't, I don't think about it. If I had a choice, and of course you as already said to me, we all have choices. <laughs> Maybe we do. At the time I didn't seem to have one. But if I could have, I would like to be different than what I am. I would have liked to have been different than what I was, yes. 
it would be better. It would have been better for me. I would have liked to have had a better outlook on life. But I can't change yesterday. Yeah, so that's Richard. That's part of the Iceman tapes conversation with a killer, conversations with a killer, actually, and that's from part one. They are widely available on YouTube and Amazon Prime and all of that. So if you get interested in this and you happen to have not known anything about this guy and you want to further your knowledge or you're interested in this kind of thing, I would urge you to watch those. They're really interesting. They're one of the first ways I got introduced to him, so... All right, so let's start at the beginning a little bit. So Richard was born in a low-income housing project in Jersey City. And you can probably hear the accent. <laughs> he, uh, his father, Stanley Kuklinski, was born in Poland, as was his mother, and worked as uh, the father worked as a brakeman for the railroad, so a working man. And he was extremely physically abusive towards Richard. He drank whiskey with beer chasers. Boilermakers were his thing. Uh, Richard has gone on record talking about how it really didn't matter whether he was drunk or not. He was vicious either way. But it kind of is reflective of when he was drunk. He was just more indiscriminate about the beatings. But Richard doesn't make a distinction. He would routinely beat uh, Richard and his brother, Florian, until they were knocked out. And there was a, a third brother that came along, but not ten, 10 years later. So when Richard and Florian were, you know, four, five, six, seven years old, it was just the two of them. And um, Stanley would beat his wife uh, in front of the children. So there was that trauma. Uh, those of us in psychology, when we hear about a child being beaten, it's also doesn't the trauma or... It doesn't have to be just from if the child is being beaten. Sometimes there's domestic violence in the home and the trauma comes from witnessing um, their mother or their father being beaten or hurt. And so that's a, a diff uh, another level of trauma. So not only was he being beaten, but he was seeing his brother beaten and he was watching his mother being beaten. And he... Um, Stanley would use a belt that he wrapped around his fist and then he would regularly hit the kids in the head on purpose and um, knock them out. So in 1940, so think about it, Stanley is born uh, 1935 and Florian is a couple years older in 1940. So Richard is five five or six, depending on what time of the year it was. And Richard's older brother, Florian, uh, was beaten to death by his father. So if you can imagine Richard and Florian being beaten together and, you know, very close in age and, you know, huddling together, holding each other kind of thing is the vision that comes to mind for me. And then um, uh, Stanley kills Florian uh, by beating, basically. The whole family was instructed to tell everyone that Florian fell down the stairs. Um, so yeah, Richard was five when that happened. Uh, Anna told Richard... Uh, Anna, sorry. Anna is his mom. So Anna told Richard that Florian had been hit by a car, even though Richard knew better, I'm sure, even at five. But he didn't have any concept of death, so he just knew that 
So here's what they did in those days. They didn't have any, what I can surmise from what I read is that they didn't have any money for a burial. Mm. So Florian was put in a wooden coffin in the living room. Oh God. Um, it, so Richard, it was like, you know, he's five years old. It's kind of like he's asleep and he won't wake up kind of thing is sort of what I think kids are left to think. Uh, which I, I just, I don't know, that visual is pretty harsh for me. Your, your brother, like the closest person to you, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how a five-year-old processes that. Well, I was... In a house where there's no discussion or love, right? right. I mean, I, like, was, I was just, just about four when my brother died. And I certainly knew what was going on, and I was thankfully in a house with love. But I, I certainly knew what that meant mm -hmm. um maybe there was context around it your parents gave you some context of what had happened like that he there died. must there must have been um because i imagine there wasn't any of that in this no oh. so i'm just wondering like when we think about i know we'll have a discussion later but when we think about how he ended up and how early he became desensitized to things yeah death violence all of that like yeah, I mean, I have no idea when his first beating was, but this was at the age of five where he's regularly getting beaten to the point of being knocked out unconscious. Right, and then his brother's dead. So he's pre-verbal probably when yes. it started. <clears throat> you know, not speak, probably when he was a baby, he's getting slapped around, you For can sure. imagine. And then he's pre-memory because we, we, we often don't remember things before the age of three or so. But if people are beating you, you do. I think. I yeah, think and inference. I th and you have you have nonverbal memories because yes. I was, mm -hmm. I was about three and a half, and I get really upset when people are like, oh, it's what people told you, and it's like, no, there are certain things that are there that were yours that are mine. Mm -hmm. Verbal have. memories, I get yeah, that yeah. that may have been planted, but there's a lot of nonverbal memories because trauma is trauma, and mm -hmm. so I remember my brother being sick. I remember so he clearly. That's planted. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm wondering, too, because if we're thinking like pre-verbal, too, and we're looking at when we look at neglectful attachment, mm -hmm. he was just from the his earliest sense of self just was numb. Yeah. Dis I think you used the word, a great word and desensitized. Right. Because yeah. if you if you don't remember anything other than violence. Because we work with a lot of children and adults. How do you who, know it's trauma? Who have been abused. But I I have not, uh, not in recent times, I have worked with kids who are abused from before they can remember. Like they don't ever remember that. And he's one of them. When, you know, this guy is, I, mean, I haven't treated him. I mean, he's just want someone like that where not only were you be, it just was what was real. And then you think about mm -hmm. all of the neurological things happening mm -hmm. and like what we would call synaptic pruning, right? So like how your brain decides what to sort of let go of and what to attach to. Mm -hmm. And so how his brain developed in such a maladaptive way mm -hmm. because of what he was just innately exposed to, it's tragic. It's really tragic. And and as you're talking, I'm thinking... Uh, and the dad was fixated on knocking them out and knocking them in the head. So we're talking about major brain injuries 
in from early a development. You know, your your sensitive your head isn't even fully formed. Your scalp isn't. I mean, right. who knows when it started? Because he doesn't remember. So this would be, and this would also be like what we consider the sensitive mm-hmm. period of someone's life, right? Like birth to five or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then you think about the way his nervous system is developing or not developing. Like, does he just completely lose his ability to experience fear? Yeah, and that's why I played that clip too, because he talks a little bit about, because the guy, you couldn't probably hear the part where the guy, the interviewer asks him, how do you feel about the murders? You know, how do you feel about killing people? And he's like, I don't, I don't feel anything. Like, I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> and now having this context yeah. that makes perfect sense to yeah me. he's like you know he he's not surprised if you're watching the video he's not surprised by the question he understands that he's supposed to feel something he just doesn't which is from a lifetime you know this is an older guy if you'd ask someone who's 18 he probably wouldn't have been able he'd be like feel something you know shut up or whatever but you know he's an older guy he's been in prison for a long time when these when these interviews happen so he's had a lot of time to think about it so we're getting a more formulated thought process like as formulated as he could possibly be but yeah you're thinking five years old you've been beaten regularly you've been knocked out regularly your head's been deprived of oxygen you have major traumatic brain injuries ptsd etc your brother dies from that you who knows like witnessed it i don't know and you're observing it by your parent and your yeah. dad beating your mom. Yeah, your mom tells you that your brother was killed in a hit by a car. You you kind of know that's not true, right? On some mm-hmm. on some level. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you want to believe that, but you know that's probably not true. So then his dad lets up for a while after Florian's death. His dad kind of backs off and lets up, but then as we often see in in violent behavior, it's it's not long before he's right back to what was happening before um, using Richard as a punching bag. And then the beatings become even more brutal and frequent because there's no, I imagine because there's, there's not two people to spread it out amongst, you know, now there's just Richard to, Mm -hmm. to concentrate on. And so for him, it felt like things were more brutal and more frequent, which, you know, makes sense to me. Um, and there was an I there was a thought process around maybe you know that Stanley was blaming Richard for things and you know so Anna his mother and this will probably come as no surprise because this is well this came up in Manson's world but um, Anna is staunchly religious and Catholic and I don't have anything against Catholic people but just so happens that that was her. Uh, obsession of choice as far as faith was concerned she attended church she you know would silently ask god for help that was sort of her way of dealing with it she was also getting beaten uh then there's also because of that there's mm -hmm. the um well i can't divorce no i i don't i mean it's 1935 1940 and like, and the Catholicism. Yeah. I mean, that just with the church, she would have been excommunicated right. from the church. Right. And she's not even, I mean, if we go with that, she's not even supposed to ask questions or interfere right. or have an opinion about any of this. And and plus she's getting beaten too. So it's a culture, it's a, it's a family of, you know, there's a power differential sure. going on there. 
And I don't know if if Richard's size is any indication. Stanley was probably a big dude. And had probably beaten her down emotionally and mentally to mm-hmm. where leaving wasn't even something she was no, I don't. I, yeah, that's a very modern thought, right? Yeah, and yeah. she she didn't have the assertiveness or the. What was she going to do? No, and I and I I mean I think one one of the tactics is you know she would just face the wall not to look at it and pray while the beatings were happening. Right, that was sort of and imagine she had to watch her son die. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't even. I can't even. Imagine, how, how do really. you come back from that? Right. Um. The interesting thing is, is that she was, uh, and no pun intended, but she wasn't a saint. Um, she was involved in the, the beatings as well. Mm. She was beaten herself, and she regularly used um, a broomstick. Richard talks about a broomstick, and she would often break her broomsticks on him, mm. um, beating her. That She worked at a meatpacking plant, local meatpacking plant, and... You know, he talks about her as a cancer, um, but, that, you know, that I really disliked her. I, I found her very hateful. She was a cancer in my life. And then in later interviews, he talks about how he's always thought that about her, but that he realizes as he's aged, like she was just a victim of her own life. He has more compassion for his mother it, when he discusses things than he does for his father. There's I've never seen anything written or in any of the interviews where he's had any compassion for his father. He just talks about, like, I hated him. If I could have, I would have killed him. You know, he beat me for no reason. And he would often later in life beat people up for being loudmouthed. Um, some of his early murders are definitely attributed to that because the people say, well, why'd you kill him? And he'd say he was loudmouth, braggart or whatever. And that reminded him of his father. So it was a it was a particular trigger for, mm-hmm. for him. Um, let me see here. So yeah, regularly bruised. Uh, he was he went to a Catholic grammar school. He was an altar boy. <laughs> so you know, so was Charles Manson. So it's sort of a yeah interesting theme. These two guys that I picked out to research or have a couple of little similarities here. He was really so. He, what happened is he grew into this very awkward, very skinny, awkward painfully shy kid who did was not confident um he you know as you might imagine he saw the world as a really brutal place and i was just noting that yeah it's it's not a you know you're five six seven eight years old and this is sort of what you were reared in catholic school mom is very strict you got out of line. You got beat with a broomstick. Dad beat you for no reason. So that's total chaos. You don't know. That's just coming and oh you don't God, know the, when it the is. lack of predictability. Yeah, the chaos in dad and then mom had a reason to beat you and it was clear, but still beating you. And then brother's beaten to death and his dead body's in the living room for a while. Jesus. So we're going to take a little bit of a break and then we'll come back with um, after this period of time, how Richard's behavior starts to um, exhibit in unhealthy ways. So we'll be right back. Kathy and I can be reached on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's Terror Talk Podcast at gmail.com. So reach out. 
If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page for extra content and more behind-the-scenes discussions. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and new episodes of Shrink Chat every Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hi there, we're back with Terror Talk, and Shannon and Kathy were talking about Richard Kuklinski today. Um, I don't know why I said that so perky. Mm. Uh, it's not perky at all. Maybe it's a defense. I just uh. told Shannon over the break I needed to pop into Disney when I got home. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's pretty brutal. We have, you know, zero to five was not, it's, you just can imagine it. You don't even really know, have to know all the stories. Um, one thing I wanted to make sure I mentioned that I'm not sure I did uh, was that this was a situation where they were living in extreme poverty where Richard would have to steal food to eat. And you can imagine, you know, if if the young Florian was put in a, you know, cheap pine box in the living room and there was no money for a burial, obviously there was, I mean, if there was barely any f- food, money for food, there wasn't any money for anything like that. So I'm actually not sure what happened to the body after that, I imagine. I don't, I don't really know. I don't probably decompensated and then he yeah got and rid then of it was it was gone right perfect oh god that's just disgusting and horrible and really yeah. tragic and traumatizing for Richard I would imagine mm-hmm. so you know the interesting thing about researching these guys is that you read a lot of stories and you're taking a lot of it from secondary or third you know sources. So some of the things I'm saying are coming from interviews that I've seen of Richards, and some of the things I'm saying are coming from a couple of the books that have been written, and others are from, you know, other reporters and other people who have written stuff. So I just want to say that what we can take away from the stories is not so much every detail being right or wrong or what have you, but I think the major events are what um, we can say are true in the sense that there are memories of Richards that he hasn't denied that, you know, have been written about. And he was alive for a long time in prison and worked with a a writer to write a book, you know, all that Mm -hmm. stuff. So I just want to kind of give that disclaimer because I want to be careful to say, like, some of the details of these things are not things that I've necessarily researched like a New York Times reporter. I'm trying to give... Just like with Manson or just like when you've, you know, done Bundy and Dahmer, we're trying to give um, major events and the quality of a life so that we can extrapolate the psychology that might right. have come from it. Because, I mean, I even noticed when I was working on Dahmer, some of the conflicting mm-hmm. pieces, which is, I guess, what I hear you saying is like just not getting caught up in the nuances of some of the detail, but really what that big picture represents from a psychological perspective. Yeah. And the feeling that the story gives you and like, Oh God, if you can imagine what that was like and what that might create in someone. I just have an incredible amount of empathy. I do too. I do too. So as you remember, Richard is about five. His brother's been killed living in poverty. He's a thin kid, uh, a bullied kid. He's been bullied all his life so far. So what starts to happen, as one does, is as you go to school, you become school age, you go to class, you go to church, etc. And he's a little kid, and he's been bullied by his family all his life so far. So what happens? He goes to school, and he's bullied by kids at school. So then he starts to 
you know, that just compounds his feelings of, you know, anger, hatred, resentment, rage, isolation, you know, the anxiety of going to school and getting beaten up. So apparently there were these two Irish brothers who lived on the block who regularly um, bothered him, beat him up, um, bullied him. And there was one day came where he took a particularly severe beating from these kids. And mind you, this is before the age of 10 kind of thing. Uh, he managed to escape and run home. And Stanley happened to be home that day and was watching the his kid being beaten up from the front window. And when Richard got home, Stanley took off his belt and beat him too, saying that he was going to go downstairs and not be such a chicken shit and um, go back and, you know, go get him. So Stanley was watching from the window. So Richard left uh, with a big welt on his face, I think, and did exactly what he was told. So now he's really rageful and he's really pent up but he's also a kid who wants to please his father no matter what right totally and what i also pull from the the clip that you shared when mm -hmm. he said it would have been better for me to have had a different outlook on life and i wrote that down just because what you're talking about right now demonstrates that priming from early on even though his conscience let him know that there's something not quite right here. It's almost like when you look at the Nazis and the way that they were brain, like clearly going into it before they were fully brainwashed or primed, right. Right. there has to be some internal conflict around like, I mean, maybe not, I don't know. But I'm imagining this kid to a certain extent has a, has a level of innocence and understanding, but he's being primed so early again, that word desensitization comes up to be like, no, this is how you handle that. Mm -hmm. Get that feeling out. Feelings are useless. Yeah. You don't need to feel anything you about this. You being a victim is not Yeah, appropriate you need to get here. rid of the feelings mm -hmm. and get angry mm -hmm. and get out there and kick some ass. Yeah. Like, and this became the metaphor of his life. Yeah, he's he gets beat up for being, you know, a weaker kid in the neighborhood, comes home and gets beat up for being a weaker kid and then is told, like, get out there and is given, you know, more welts on his body. Like, no, no, you don't lay down for people like that. No. Nope. You go out there and you kick their ass. Like, that's unacceptable. It's kind of um, what we now refer to as, like, at least part of it is part of what we refer to as the toxic masculinity, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you're not going to feel anything about this. You're going to go, this is what it means to be a man. Yeah. And that. Yeah. And that's exactly what he was being taught to do. Definitely learned behavior, at least from what we're talking mm -hmm. about. Um, so he marches back out there and he's pretty rageful at this point. Remember, you know, he's already developing a feeling of hatred and rage towards the world and his father. But also I get that like still wanting to, I don't know if it's wanting to do what his father wanted him to do or just the fear of more beating. And so like, okay, I guess I got to go out here and like, I either die by the hand of these bullies or I die by my father's hand. What's the difference? So I might as well go outside. So he goes outside and he is, you know, pent up and rageful. And so he beats them up. 
is the way the story goes. It's like the that displacement we talk about, right? Yeah, yeah. And and the story gets even slightly more sick. Uh, their father, so these two Irish boys, their father um, comes out of the house while Richard's beating them up and pushes Richard off of him. Like he has a protective feeling where Stanley did not. Um, has a protective feeling, pushes Richard off and at that moment in time, because Stanley's watching the whole time, his dad's watching, he leaps out of a second, this is the dad, Jesus. Stanley, he leaps out of a second story window, landing squarely on his feet and storms across the street. I mean, this is how the story goes, but who knows? Like, it's very <laughs> like dramatic. The like the devil. I mean, For sure. Yeah. It, fits the, it fits the vision we have yeah. of him, right? Who knows if that's how it really happened. But And he slaps the father across the face and says, you know, when your kids beat up my kid, you watched and did nothing. Mm. But when my kid fought back, you stopped it. And then he hit the guy so hard that he knocked him out right there on the sidewalk. And then, you know, that was that. <laughs> Just another lovely day in the neighborhood. Yeah. Woohoo, family. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, this particular writer that I was reading said, you know, Richard learned that day that, you know, that was the way he handled things. He often wondered, like, why his father and mother didn't like him which I think is an interesting kind of kid feeling um, what he'd done to deserve the violence. I think we see that a lot in kids who are abused. I had conversations about that today. Uh, you know, victims of abuse often carry a feeling of worthlessness and, mm -hmm. a, and a confusion around what did I do to deserve this kind of life and 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 those feelings at least in richard caused him to you know grow a rage and he, he's a little kid at this point still remember the grow, displaced aggression yeah a rage and aggression and hatred and towards the world really because what had the world really given him so far and this is what he yeah this is what he knew of the world because when right. you're that young your world is your family, mm -hmm. right? So like when you go through the stages of development, when you get into middle school and stuff, then it becomes your school friends and your peers and your teachers. But at his age, his world was his home. Mm -hmm. And that is what it was. Yeah. So that's what he then extrapolated to the, the yeah. outside world being that's as well. That's how the world is. Yep. And that's what we all do. And it's the same when you grow up in a relatively healthy, you know, loving family where you think the world is a good place. And then you have the adjustment of, well, it can be good and not so good. And you have those adjustments as you, you know, go out into the world to get a job, et cetera, and you start to learn those things. So it's just that from, we all go through that, but it's that frame of reference. So, so this is all uh, elementary school. And what you should know is that then we start to see um, behaviors that are, indicative of some of the kids we've seen along the way and certainly some of the people that we've talked about in the series is that by 10 years old uh, Richard is regularly killing animals and I won't go into the specifics but they're out there in his interviews um, regularly torturing and killing uh, cats in particular dogs uh, doing all sorts of what I will tell you is not so much the specifics uh, but that he's what you get in it is that he's figuring out different ways to kill. Mm. And so that is what we see in um, early psychopathy mm -hmm. often is that 
animals are weaker for kids, right? They can't, generally speaking, they're, they're an easy target. And so if you have no feelings about, and no context for death, and you have no feelings about uh, violence, then really what you're doing is in the moment you're, um, you know, having cats fight each other or kicking them off roofs or, you know, whatever you're doing with them. And, and I'm not talking about five animals. I'm talking about many, many animals mm -hmm. he was uh, killing. And he talks about it because uh, people have asked him, you know, well, well, what was that like? Like, did you have any feelings about it? And he says, no feelings. And then he says, maybe a little bit of excitement. And then, and then a little bit of disgust at myself. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, I wonder, <laughs> I'm sorry. I wonder if it would be, yeah. it would be um, equivalent to, let's say someone who's incredibly depressed, which we know like, you know, anger is obviously like depression outward mm -hmm. and then depression right so you see someone sometimes who will cut mm -hmm. and that release that they yes. feel but there's also uh shame mm -hmm. and they want to hide it and they i wonder if that was maybe a similar feeling. yeah i'm not sure i mean i think um i think he partly feels disgust uh at himself for that but i also know that his his verbiage around it is actually like i felt disgust because i wasn't doing anything that was really a challenge they, they were helpless and it wasn't really hard so it, why was that why did i keep doing it right you know it was easy yeah and sometimes too i mean he was young so i don't know if this is what he was doing there but sometimes we'll see this is more for serial killers though where you'll see them use animals as rehearsal well and so that's that's why this is such a actually an interesting ongoing conversation about this guy is because what we know in the media from looking back at his interviews and stuff is that he was this mafia hitman i, thought, I mean that's what the media really hung on yeah. to is that his career was mafia hitman mm -hmm. but what we're seeing in his early life is the rage and violence that we know so many serial killers go through as children mm -hmm. And then we're now seeing this practice that we also think about serial killers as. There's there's a couple things going on in my head right now. One is, you know, we could look at this two ways, but there's one thing that gives it up for me. So if we looked at it simply from like a displaced aggression, which it could have been with everything that he had been through, then that to me would be not necessarily... Um, a serial killer type thing. Mm -hmm. But the, the fact that he made the comment that it wasn't a challenge mm -hmm. is what makes me go, okay, there's a different level. This is not mm -hmm. just someone who is kicking rocks because he's, you know, he's frustrated and he's displacing his aggression onto the, the right. neighborhood cat. This right. is someone who's going, you know, I did all this, but it's really not good enough. It's not dirty enough. It's not hard enough. It's not gruesome enough. So there, that's a whole other level. Yeah, I'm, I, I imagine, and this is me imagining just how I see behavior grow or change, is that I'm imagining in the beginning it was a little bit challenging because he didn't know what mm -hmm. he was doing and he didn't know how he wanted to do it. And you really get the sense that um, – and, and you'll get this sense throughout this series is you get the sense that he was uh, prided himself on being creative. So he's 
being creative. And this is a, you know, maybe 50 or 60 year old guy looking back on it and being asked, how did you feel? And his first thing is like, no, I didn't feel anything. Well, maybe a little bit excited, but then disgusted because it wasn't really a challenge and they were helpless. So you're really getting a comment of like four or five sentences that distills, you know, a couple of years of behavior, right? So it's like, well, in the beginning he was probably challenged and then by the end he was bored. And you're seeing, and all the while, if you imagine like all the while he's getting beat up by his dad still, he's probably getting beat up and beating up at school. He's 10, like prior to 10. So we can maybe guess like seven, eight, nine, 10. He's doing this. And if you imagine those ages, which is elementary school, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, and then regularly doing this. And then, you know, your mom is a strict Catholic. She's, you know, so there's just like this whole, <laughs> I just get, and the, and poverty, right? I just get this whole picture of kind of who he was and what a very sick kid he was. Mm. And it's, what is it? It's the 40s. It's the 1940s. You know, we have a tendency to think about like, uh, not necessarily you and I, but like in general, we think about things of being like now or 20 years ago, but mm -hmm. this is the 1940s. Mm -hmm. This is a very different, this is a very different culture. He ends up uh, only having an eighth grade education. And a couple of interesting things happen around that age. So what uh, eighth grade is, is around 13. So... I'm not, I, I didn't look up the dates and I'm not even sure I know, but I know that the dad leaves, abandons the family when Richard is a teenager, but I'm not sure if it happens before or after this. So eighth grade, he, I guess he finished eighth grade, but at the age of 13, Kuklinski, um, so there's these bullies that we know about. And the story goes that he grabbed a, a wooden hanging rod from the house, like from a closet, I guess, and went into the alley outside of his apartment building where there's this gang called the Project Boys because they lived in the projects. And there was this leader of this gang whose name was Charlie, and he knew that Charlie would walk home through this alley. So remember, picture that from a from for five six seven years he's been getting beat up by kids beating them up he's also now torturing and killing animals on the regular um and so there's this gang and he's obviously a very angry kid and there's a gang leader that's bothering him and he knows this kid walks through this alley so the kid's walking through the alley this one day and richard's there with this rod and richard is like you know go for it kind of gives him the invitation like yeah come at me which is probably like a regular thing that happens all the time in his neighborhood and uh richard ends up you know hitting him so hard with the wooden pole that he kills the kid so then he knows he's 13 he knows he's got to dispose of the body so he steals a car remind you know he's 13 steals a car and drives to a nearby bridge, I guess, in South Jersey. And 
Again, the story goes that he cuts off Charlie's fingertips with a hatchet, knocks out his teeth with a hammer before dumping the... How did he know to cover that up? Yeah, see how... See how... He was resourceful already. So between the ages of... So what we know is like five, his brother dies, he's already getting regular beaten, regularly beaten. Somewhere in his, between five and ten, he's, he's getting beaten up and he's beating up and he's torturing cats and doing this whole thing. And then between ten and thirteen, you know, now he's progressed by thirteen to he killed this kid. He's like tr- sophisticated. Trying to cover him up, then dumps him in the, bo- in the pond, I guess, this is someplace in South Jersey. And... Uh, later he it's stated that later he like individually tracks down all the other members of the project boys and like hurts them i don't know if he killed them or not i'd probably not but um beats them up and then forms his own gang uh which quickly of course establishes (laughs) this writer says quickly established a reputation as a crew not to be fucked with (laughs) so you can imagine so it sounds like that was early gangland for him this was this was his gang and this was a this was a gang that was probably giving him trouble and so he took them out it's very early mafia right it's, it's very so, and it's so primitive like it's very primitive. everything about his life is primitive there's no he- healthy attachments or relationships there's no nurturing there's no good memories there's nothing that needs to be in place for a kid to develop into a fully functioning, adaptive human being. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have started writing down, we talked about risk factors in one of our other episodes uh, a couple weeks ago or a week ago. Yeah. And, you know, so he's male, he's a dropout, he was abused, he's torturing animals, he was bullied, his first kills at 13. I mean, the list, this is insanity. It's, it's really is. And, and then we, you know, I, I just, I, I, as we say a lot on this. He wasn't given a chance at no, life. No, not at all. And on this show, we're always trying to sort of dig a bit deeper and kind of look at at how everything was created. Because, again, what we, what the, what the main population knows of this guy, if they've looked at it at all, is that he was a mafia hitman. It's like they're... And that, oh, you know, you you have this imagination of like this guy needed a job and so he got a job because he could kill and not have feelings. And so he got a job as that and he had this family and had three kids. But if you look at this, like we're at 13 years old and he's already got a gang and a murder under his belt. He's already in the mafia. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like not the American mafia as we know it. I mean, my only argument with the murder, I don't know how they labeled it, but to me it also felt very much like self-defense. Yeah. Because I think when, this is one of the things that I would run into when I was doing um, more, uh, when I was doing treatment with offenders Mm -hmm. who had been incarcerated for multiple different reasons was the being able to differentiate um, between someone who's actually seeking violence versus someone who's sort of, raised in an area where they learn to self-defend very early. So I don't, I don't look at this particular murder as something he was necessarily seeking, but was more of just a product of his environment. Yeah. It's complicated because if you, it's like if you're in court, right. And you're looking at, at, at like whether you're the defense or the prosecution, you know, the defense is going to say 
something akin to that where product of his environment, what choice did he have, right? The, the way he was, the, the culture he was in was like kill or be killed. Mm-hmm. So what choice did he have? Survival. And then, right. And the prosecution's going to, I'm not a lawyer, but the prosecution's going to say something along the lines of, yes, but on that day, he chose to mindfully get a wooden hanging rod, right. mindfully go into the alley, mindfully stalk this kid. He still knowing, made a choice. And waited, you know, and waited and then and then asked the guy, the story kind of goes like he saw Charlie in the alley and then said sort of like, you know, they locked eyes and he sort of said like, yeah, give it a shot. It was provocative, right? And so, yeah. and then- then that goes back to, again, what was learned because yes. that's how his father would mm-hmm. have reacted to that. Right. And I, I don't, you know, courts aren't really necessarily no, they don't. allowed to take that into They, they don't care. <laughs> they don't, you know, that's not the point, right? But more, more from like the way we're looking at yes. his motive or his, at least his, um, how... Well, an understanding of how he got there, really. Yeah. Uh, yeah. His, de- you know, are we looking at this as like deviance or are we looking at mm-hmm. it as this is this was survival for him. If he didn't go out and do that that day, was he then setting himself up to have to watch his back? Right. And and I tell the story too, because it's akin to the story I told before about him having to, like his dad beating him up and having to go back out and beat up the bullies for fear of death. It's the same type. That's what I mean. It's like parallel to that. Exactly. Exactly. Like this is what his dad taught him to do. That's right. And that's exactly, um, thank you for that, Kathy, because that's exactly why I wanted to tell those stories. It's because I feel like... You're very welcome. I'm glad that I could support... (laughs) My narrative. What you were trying to do in that moment. I appreciate your support. Um, Anyway, so, yes. Little humor, because it's dark. It's very dark. So we're going to take a little bit of a break, and then what we're going to do, instead of... uh, We don't do what the hell segments on on our series that we do on these... Gentlemen, generally, I'm sure we'll do a female. Oh, we did Lizzie Borden. That's right. Mm-hmm. On these types of series, we don't generally, we don't do a what the hell segment is my point. But what we are going to do is come back after a break and have uh, a kind of a wrap up discussion about what we've looked at um, and where we're at in the story so that the next episode we can kind of set up where we're going. So we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. We're back. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. We are wrapping up our first episode on Richard Kuklinski, who is the Iceman killer. Or just the Iceman. I like to throw killer in there, I guess, because, I don't know, sounds like a TV show or something. It certainly does. Uh, So, what's up, Kathy? What are your reactions to this episode so far, or this topic, or this guy? Well, I, I I brought up something earlier, which I didn't really go into much detail about because you typically we get more into the behavioral stuff, but I think it's really important when we're dealing with early trauma, abuse, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> I just said, et cetera. <laughs> and I hate when people say that, oh, et cetera. Well. Uh, synaptic pruning. I brought it up earlier. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to go into that a little bit just for people who maybe n- not so familiar with it. But it's basically um, something that occurs, I, I believe it starts, it, it, I, I can't remember if it actually starts in, in utero or from birth, mm-hmm. but as children, we sort of, we overproduce the connections in our synapses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
So during puberty, the body kind of carries it, carries it out, snipping away at certain things and allow allows others to strengthen while others fall away. And a lot of this has to do with what is reinforced. So it essentially helps us develop into fully functioning human beings. Some of us have strengths in some areas and others in other areas, but it also contributes to psychiatric disorders. So mm-hmm. if, if, if there's damage, you know, they've linked it to schizophrenia and things. So the, without going into too much detail, I just think about this poor little kid's brain. Yeah. Because I mean, my understanding is that it, you know, it, it starts as an infant and, um, you know, around two or three years old, you have this influx of synapses uh, growing, mm-hmm. uh, synaptic growth, they call it. Mm-hmm. And um, and so if we think about Richard at two or three years old, he's already getting um, hurt, right? And then, right. and then as those couple of years go by, he's um and all these different traumatic events are happening whereas he's supposed to having he's supposed to be having his brain synapses strengthen over that time mm-hmm. but what's happening is they're being weakened or or, or they or there's like this latent latency mm-hmm. because they're saying that sometimes even schizophrenia I know he didn't have schizophrenia but schizophrenia can emerge as a result of late brain development so mm-hmm. did this trauma in a way pause mm-hmm. or did it go into a degenerative state that didn't allow right. him to ever really well and so yeah the way i understand synaptic pruning in in particular is that f- it's it's a use it or lose it type situation. So, for example, if I'm a kid and I learn English as my language and I don't learn any other language and let's say, um, you know, I'm 35 years old and I want to learn Spanish and there are certain sounds that Spanish is required, like I have to make if I want to speak Spanish correctly mm-hmm. and make the perfect pronunciation. But long ago my language centers pruned my mm-hmm. ability to roll my R's mm-hmm. and do whatever is necessary to sound like a native speaker. And I have to re I have to figure out how to do that and will probably never do it well mm-hmm. because I didn't do that. So that's why people always talk. That's one of the many reasons why people always talk about learning a second language when you're a little kid, mm-hmm. but that's the same type of deal. And mm-hmm. so whatever, you know, all the things he was trying to grow from embryonic stages to later in life, he was, there was such an influx of um, trauma and stimulation mm-hmm. to to those centers of violence, et cetera, and like not grooming any of this. It's, it's almost like they just dried up and died. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't doubt that. You know, I don't doubt that by the time we were seeing him having, you know, interviewing that, several parts of his brain were not functioning at a level where he could really understand feelings or any of that. Although in some of the interviews, you know, he cries. I mean, we'll get to all that. What was reinforced was survival. Yes. And he was really good at that. Yeah, absolutely. And then made it his job. And then Mm -hmm. that was the way, you know, we'll get into this. So that's another thing I want to, I want to mention is kind of where we're going with this. So uh, the next episode, we're going to talk uh, certainly about um, how he 
goes about living his young adult life because I would say by the time he's killed someone at 13 years old, I would say Richard's childhood is solidly over whatever childhood you could muster from that. Um, by 13, he's a fully formed, uh, he's in the form he's going to be in. Whereas most of us have the luxury of being able to do that until we're about 25 or so. Um, I would say now we're into what we would consider Richard's adulthood, which really started about 13 or so yeah. because he drops out of school in the eighth grade. Yep. And, um, you know, what starts to happen now, I think is indicative of adult behavior and that's the way that goes. And then, and then how he, I'm not sure if we'll get to how he gets into the mafia the next, oh yeah, I think he will. Cause he does it pretty young and sort of, he meets his wife. There's a lot of, you know, the next chunk that happens. I also want to discuss the mafia in a little bit of detail because, you know, there's certainly a lot of movies about the mafia like everyone's seen the godfather at least from a certain generation and certain mafia movies goodfellas etc are extremely famous and i think depict a lot of kind of accurate uh at least affect and culture of the mafia but i think it would be important for us to talk a little bit about the mafia of that time period the family he got involved with pretty solidly Richard's view of the situation and how he, how he experienced um, them and himself. Mm -hmm. Cause I think it's unique. So that's where we're going with it. I like it. Cool. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you have any questions or um, you know, things you would like us to talk about in the, in the course of this series or in, in any other topics that we get to, please don't hesitate to contact us. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.